Hello. Yo. Do I sound better? Yeah, definitely. Thank God, dude. I was like, oh my fucking god, not this shit right now. How <laughs> How are you doing? How has your day been? Uh, I'm doing all right, man. I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm pretty okay. Pretty okay. Woke up late, listened to music, caught up on things, and now doing this podcast with you. Yeah, did it already start? Uh, we're 30 seconds into it right now, but oh, of course, perfect. We could always crop it out if you want to have any changes towards it. But this happened before. <laughs> we were. I, for, I always forget. I mean, listen, listen. I'm a very forgetful person, but yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to uh, chit chat with you. Oh yeah. So last night um, was the drop of "Leave the Door Open" from Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack. From your first listen, I believe you've listened to it a couple more times since then. What were your first thoughts? Uh, yeah, I've listened to it many more times since then. Uh, I've been listening to it like basically all day at this point. I was watching like people's like reactions to it on YouTube and everything, just trying to like, you know, kind of gauge if people were like feeling the same way about it as I am. Um, it's fantastic, man. It's really, it's a soul throwback. It's a little bit R and B soul, little like Motown funky. Like it's it's fantastic. Um. I think that in general, Bruno Mars is a very, and I use, I don't use this word lightly, underrated artist. Um, you know, obviously very successful and everything, but I just, I genuinely believe that he is one of the best artists of this generation to reach such a high level of critical and like um, popularity success. And, you know, working with Anderson Pack, who is somebody that, like, is not as big, but it's just a match made in heaven, honestly. It really is. I'm enjoying it. I, I think, you know, I listened to it with you actually last night. I think you're enjoying it just as much as I am. I loved it a lot. One of my, what do you call it, the first time listening to it, and I've listened to it a couple more times, it, it feels so good to listen to it. It feels like it's going to be a classic by the end of the year or by the next few months. Yeah, I was watching... um they did a round of interviews this morning, Bruno and Anderson, and it just seems like they they just locked in. They're having a good time. Like I, I've never seen – you know, Bruno Mars is somebody that's like very much a perfectionist. Like he's always been very hard on himself historically about the kind of music he makes, and he always wants to make sure – his albums are very concise. I think 24 Karat Magic was maybe like nine or ten songs. Like it's very short. Because he's just trying to make sure he's giving you the best music possible. And with Anderson Pack, who's like a very talented musician, like I imagine that it's probably going to be maybe the best project of both of their careers, but time will tell. You were correct on the 24K Magic being nine songs, by the way. Yeah, it's nine songs, but you know, every song just has so much like meaning to it. And, you know, I see a lot of people try to accuse Bruno of being a culture vulture and borrowing too heavily from, you know, like funk and especially like on 24 karat magic, a lot of funk. Um, but I mean, he does it so well. Like I, you know, and honestly, like in, in music, there's like a, a tradition of borrowing that seems to be kind of like lost on the new generation where it's like, you know, back in the day, you, you sit around a campfire or whatever they did back then. I don't know what they're doing, but 
and hmm. you sing these songs that have been passed down from generation to generation and you put your own little spin on it and then that's that's music that's what it's always been is like passing on the tradition and carrying it on like bruno has that torch right now in his hand and i think it's he does a fantastic job of carrying on that lineage i really do and one question i did want to ask you was because i know you're a huge bruno fan what was the first album that you listened to and what was the first song um i th- i would say it had to be grenade That's from Do-Ops and Hooligans. yeah yeah so and i think i might have had that album saved on my ipod back back in the the day um and that was his first I think he only if i'm not mistaken yeah i had like the nano like the like the long thin one like it was it was one of my Same favorite here. things ever the most embarrassing thing ever is the first song I ever bought on it was like, uh, I think it comes naturally by Selena Gomez and like my friends found out and just like absolutely destroyed me for it. But you know what? I love that song as a kid. Anywho. Yeah. I mean, I think Bruno, what only has three albums, right? Um, yes. Do Wops and Hooligans, Unorthodox Jukebox and 24 K Magic. I think I've heard all three. I think the first time I actually, sat down and listened to a bruno album front to back was probably 24 karat magic though because yeah i mean i was too young like i'm only i'm only 19 right now like his other albums like i was a kid when he dropped them pretty much yes doo-wops and hooligans came out in 2010 unorthodox jukebox came out in 2012 and 24k magic came out in 2016 that's see that's crazy that the first album came out when i was nine but I was listening to Grenade, like I just got my heart broken, bro. Like that song hurt me. Like I was like, I it like just like put a pain in me. I'm like, I've never like I'm nine, bro. I was like a fat little <laughs> nine year old. Like I wasn't doing anything. But I mean, that's like the power of Bruno's songwriting. He's fantastic. I think I've listened. I've listened to that song recently. And I'm like, man, now I know the heartbreak he feels in this song. Yeah, yeah. I it's mean, really good. I don't. I don't say this lightly, but. If you had to say, like, if you had to pick a this generation's Michael Jackson, I'm taking Bruno all day. You know, I, I shout out to The Weeknd, who's probably, like, right up there. And I'm talking, I know there's artists, there's uh, singers that are more talented than them. But it, you have to, like, look into, like, the popularity. Like, these are, like, cultural icons. Like, that was what Michael was. You have to take into account, like popularity and skill and i see bruno in the weekend like right up there for that and i just i feel like bruno he's just got the voice like he's you know like all over the weekend but bruno's voice is unmatched in that comparison and i think his music uh it just seems to come from such a genuine place like he's such a he's just such a a student of the history of music and it, it really pays off in his music yeah, in a lot of the songs and a lot of the production for Doo-Ops and Hooligans, they do say that he has a lot of inspiration. You can see like the inner Michael Jackson coming out of him, which is honestly amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the first person I heard compare Bruno to MJ was my mom, actually. And, you know, she she obviously was a teen, like during Michael's peak, and like she knows what that feeling's like. And, um, you know, it's hard for us to compare because we're young. It's like we weren't there when, like, Michael was, like, at his biggest and, like, in his prime. But I can only imagine it's like this. I mean, it's like you have a guy 
who's supremely popular, always dominating the charts, but he also makes great music. His voice is fantastic, and he cares. Like, you can tell he cares. Like, he's not your traditional pop star. He's not just making music for money. None of it's focus group. None of it's forced. Like, he's just making the music that he loves, and that's what I love about him. It's honestly very, very great. But I was going to say by the whole um, doo-wops and hooligans, um... It sold 50 million. It's certified platinum by a majority of um, certifications. Number three worldwide. And songs like Grenade, Just the Way You Are, The Lazy Song, Talking to the Moon, Marry You, and Count on Me all were the singles from it. If you could pick three of those songs that speak to you, what would they be? Ooh, let's go look. Let me open my Spotify real quick. Do-offs and hooligans. So, Obviously, we talked about Grenade. I think that um, that's up there. Oh, there's so many. I'm looking at this. This this is like 10 songs, right? They're all hits. Count on Me, Marry You, Lazy Song, Run Away, Baby, Grenade, Just the Way You Are. I mean, like, these songs are massive. Like, I feel like they, they were all probably, like, number one or very close at some point. But I'm going to say Grenade, uh, Just the Way You Are, and maybe runaway baby i think runaway babies it was a hit but like somewhat underrated maybe yeah it's honestly crazy that his debut album his is his biggest album I'm not trying to say like any of his other albums are not the biggest of course unorthodox zoo was also number one in the u.s australia and canada 24k magic was number two in the u.s number three in australia number two in canada but for doo-wops and hooligans, for your first album coming out and producing 15 million sales, having certificates of that right there is legendary as fuck. No, there's, you know, and honestly, I did not take the time to look over it myself, but I'm looking through his discography right now. And it's, it's, you just don't see this anymore. You don't, I can't tell you the last time I've seen an, a debut album with this many hits on it. And I, I'm saying hits as in objectively, like they just skyrocketed on the charts. Like they were like really well performing songs. And you look at Unorthodox Juicebox, you know, ju- I said Juicebox, my bad. Jukebox. <laughs> you got, you know, Walk Out of Heaven, Treasure, When I Was Your Man. Like these albums are just loaded with hits. And 24 Karat Magic, obviously, you got plenty there as well. Yeah, 24K Magic was number two worldwide with songs, of course, like the self-titled album, 24K Magic, That's What I Like, Versace on the Floor, Chunky, and Finesse with Cardi B. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's genuinely ridiculous. It's amazing that whenever he touches the microphone, he creates magic within it. No matter what he does, no matter what song he's on, he's able to perform and produce it magically. Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, and yeah, it's just you have to you have to note the level of skill and popularity. And honestly, when it comes to those two things, like I would say only somebody like maybe Kendrick Lamar rivals him. He's a fantastic artist. He's he's just a student of the game, like I said. Like he's he's fantastic. And it's honestly, I will say this: it's legendary for Bruno to be to collab with Anderson Pack. And make this album because Pac, yes, he is a 
potential commercial breakthrough, like from his, I believe, his second album it was, um, Malibu. And then when you have someone like Bruno helping you out, not even like helping, but like collabing with you and just making this amazing collab album that they're going to come out with, do you feel like it'll make Anderson Pack reach up almost at a level, not that Bruno is at, but at a level that everybody can recognize his greatness? Yeah, I mean, that's why I think it's such a special project, honestly, is the the mutual benefits for both of them. Um, you look at Bruno, this is somebody that, you know, he's at the point of his career where, you know, he kind of, you don't want to force it, but he needs to keep making hits if he wants to maintain, like, his stance in the music world. It sucks, but it's like, here's the issue. If Bruno makes an album and it doesn't just like chart wildly and just go crazy across the world, people are going to say it was a failure. It could be like his best album musically, but they're going to say it's a failure. But when you're working with Anderson Pack, this is somebody that he understands how to make a hit song. He's been working with Dr. Dre. He works with Kendrick. He works with J. Cole. He works with like a tribe called Quest. He works with like all of these people that, have these long histories of success and he's just been around them his entire career pretty much. And, you know, I think that's a victory or uh, sorry, a, a formula for victory for both of them. And as for Anderson Pack, it's like, yeah, he's, he's not the biggest star right now, but I think give him time with this album, if it charts well. And like, I went on, I went on Twitter this morning, Bruno was still trending like what tw- over 12 hours after the song had dropped, he's still trending on like one of the top trends on Twitter. People love the song. It's still trending. And, you know, as much as Bruno's trending, I typed in Anderson Pack's name. You know, every, like, three seconds, there's a new tweet, like, talking about how good he is in the song. Like, it's it's definitely the most exposure he's gotten. And, yeah, I'm very fascinated to see, like, where it goes from here. I think that if they can land some hits on the album, Anderson's trajectory is only going to go up. It's the Dr. Dre stimulus package, man. I, everything that man touches as long as it's not his solo material, like, turns the goal. Exactly. I was going to switch over to talking about Anderson Pack since we've, you know, talked a good amount about Bruno. With Anderson, you, his first project, um, Venice, was that your first project you listened to, or was the Malibu Oxnard that you listened to before then? Actually, the first project I found from Anderson, it was Malibu. It was... um. I think that was one of the, the first, that was when I was really getting into music. Like, oh, your mic's spazzing a little bit. Oh, my apologies oh, for no, that. It's Is good, it, it's good. it was just one like weird, like staticky. No, you're good though. Um, yeah, so the first project I heard from him was Malibu. Um, that was, I think, early 2015, I want to say. Yeah. Um, well, it came out in 2016. Huh? Was it 2016? Yes. Really? Because because before then, he was featured on six of the 16 songs on Dr. Dre's Compton album. You know what? Tell me. Okay. Do you have the day it dropped? Um, I can actually look that up for you right now. It dropped on January 15th, 2016. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Because, okay, this is going to sound crazy. But, like, he posted on Instagram one time. He was like, Oh, it's like the, like, whatever, like, three or four year anniversary of Malibu. Thank you, everybody. The post was, like, in the middle of the year. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. 
this album came out in January, did it not? Like, I remember it being at the top of the year. And I was so confused as to why he was like, and then everyone in the comment section is like, wow, it's like nobody like questioned it. I was like, wait, it came out in January. What's going on right now? Anyway, yeah, Malibu was the first project I heard. It It's a fantastic, it's still my favorite Anderson Pack project, even though all his projects are fantastic. Eventually I did uh, circle back around to Venice, which is another fantastic project. Maybe my least favorite from him just because it feels like a little underdeveloped at certain points and like the production is not as um vibrant as it is on his future projects but i mean the man's a walking talking hit machine i genuinely believe that i think anderson pack is such an old soul like there are very few artists that like i can really like connect with my family with because you know i listen to like a lot of like hip-hop and like rock it's like my dad enjoys rock but like for my mom Anderson Pack is like one of the few artists that like we can both really enjoy because she loves that like old school like Motowny type stuff. And funnily enough, like one of her other favorite artists is Bruno Mars. So like the first thing I did last night was like I ran back and I like I had to play this song for her because I knew she was gonna love it. And of course she did. They're just that's why I'm I'm saying is there a match made in heaven for the old soul that soul the funk the R and B like. I'm just, I'm just super, super excited for it. With Malibu, it was ranked number seventy-nine in the U.S. when it dropped, number nine in R&B, and it was certified gold. Songs like the season, um, the season I carry me, and my wrong, um, room in here, come down, were all the singles that came out of it. Plus, it was nominated for best urban contemporary um album from the Grammys, and it was also the start of his potential commercial breakthrough. Do you think that? that was one of his biggest albums or do you think that Ox sort of Ventura um amount more over it? Um if we're talking about his superstar trajectory, I, I think that Malibu was the star, but I don't know if it was like his biggest progress point. I think that Oxnard, because of him working with Dr. Dre on that project and all of the features like you got yeah. Kendrick on that album, Pusha T, J. Cole, Q Tip, um Snoop Dogg yeah, also. Snoop Dogg and others. Um it just that album felt like his big moment. And people didn't, you know, it didn't like it wasn't as widely accepted as Malibu just because I think people had gotten accustomed to Anderson Pack being more of like a soul R&B artist and Oxnard was more like hip hop influenced, but I think it's a fantastic project. And I think it's safe to say that, Hey, you know, he dropped that album. Then the next year or like maybe it was slightly before that, like while he was working on it, but you know, then he goes to tour with Bruno and here we are. Right. It's, I think Anderson Pack is probably at his, peak exposure right now and it was definitely like that time where he was really skyrocketing up i think he was a little bit too underground still um around the malibu era and i think that i mean i um, i cringed when you said urban contemporary album because i think the grammys are ridiculous for that like just call it an r&b album or just call it a soul album like i don't understand like the whole and they tried to change it i think it's like they're calling it like progressive r&b now it's like that just feels so weird to me because they wouldn't do that to like white artists. Like, why are you putting black artists in a box and being like, 
oh, you can only make like a certain type of R&B. Like this is like urban contemporary. Like what does that even mean? Like nominating Beyonce for urban contemporary because I think I think she was nominated the same year as Pac in that category and she ended up winning unsurprisingly because it's Beyonce. But I just think that category is, is ridiculous to me. It really is. He, he just put the man up for best R&B album. Is it that hard? Brandon, when I first read it, I was like, Wait, what? This is an R&B album. Why are you saying it's, urban contemporary? It's for not it? even a real genre. It, they're basically just saying it's like, like black R&B. But it's like they slapped it together and said, "Here, have yeah, it." Yeah, but black R&B is R&B. Like they they invented the genre. They like revitalized the genre. They like they they control that genre. Like it is theirs. Like I don't want to. Like I don't know how many like white R and B artists there are, but I promise you, I'm probably not listening to them as far as I can think. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like it, it's just so like weirdly like disrespectful. I think Tyler the Creator um, kind of addressed that um, a bit when he felt like he should have been nominated as like more like a pop album than a rap album, and he I think he talked about the urban contemporary category and they think they're so like slick changing it to progressive r&b just call it r&b man it's r&b there's no like exactly there's no like like uh, if, if we're gonna keep on like calling this like progressive r&b we need like a cracker hip-hop category to like keep because then you know macklemore would have never had to rob fucking jay-z kendrick drake and kanye in the same year and, you know, we wouldn't have to worry about, like, the G-Easies of the world anymore. We could just put them in their own little box and have them duke it out and let the actual, like, hip-hop artists play. They all give me nightmares. I hate it. Uh, yeah. It, okay. Well, yeah, if we're talking about the Grammys, I mean, oh, the Macklemore thing was just... Abysmal. That was horrific. I hated it with a passion. The Grammys in general, I mean, it's a... I don't... You know, everybody calls the Grammys racist and this or that. And I, I honestly, like... With, with their selections mainly, I do think that the progressive R and B thing is like it's weird. I don't know if like it's like kind of like a feels like a microaggression towards black people, just like being like, oh, like yeah, you can be R and B, but we're not gonna put you like in the traditional R and B category. It's like why genres evolve, like you know, it's like it's stupid. But anyway, yeah, I mean, people call the Grammys like racist for like some of the selections they make. Example, like. When Taylor Swift's, I think, 1985 beat Kendrick Lamar's to a Butterfly back in 2016. Um, but I understand that they have to make safe choices to just, you know, be as neutral and boring as possible with their choices to not stir up any controversy or anything. But I don't know. At a certain point, it's like, if you're going to continue to make the safe choices, why should I even bother tuning in? That is true. That is very Kendrick true. Kendrick Lamar dropped one of the greatest hip hop albums, if not just greatest albums in general, uh, of all time, and especially of this generation. And Taylor Swift dropped a pleasant pop album. I don't know. It was a country pop. I don't know what she was doing back then, but you know, it's like pleasant, but it didn't do anything. Kendrick Lamar's album, like. It did so much for the culture and for the the United States of America as a whole. And like, you still hear people chanting the song "All Right" at protests, and like, his music still has so much significance to this day. Meanwhile, like the Taylor Swift stuff is nothing more than just like nostalgia food. Like, you listen to it 
to remember that one party you went to when you were a 12 year old, you don't listen to it for any like actual meaning or purpose. Like it's it just, you know, and I think it's becoming kind of like a farce because you have all these artists withdrawing now, like Frank Ocean doesn't want to submit his albums. You have Kanye West pissing on his Grammy in a urinal. Iconic video, by the way. Um, you know, and it's just like <laughs> these artists, like they're starting to get to the point where it's like, the Grammys don't matter. And if the Grammys don't matter to the artists, then the Grammys don't matter at all because the artists fuel the Grammys. I was going to bring up that with, um, back on the um, Anderson Pack, not, you know, trying to say like, you know, what you're talking about was rambling. I was, I totally agree with you, of course. With Ventura, it won a Grammy for R&B, but the thing is Oxnard was not, we, we, Oxnard, didn't win an award and Malibu was nominated for best urban contemporary yet Ventura won it won a Grammy for R&B it feels like it doesn't make any sense whenever people are picking out these awards and who and who to nominate them for but he has um songs on like Came Home which had a future from Andre 3000 one of your favorite artists King James Make It Better which had a future from Smokey Robinson and also he had features from James If you could rank between Ventura and Oxnard, which one would you say is your favorite? Um, if I had to keep one, I mean, I really enjoy both albums, but I'm probably going to keep Oxnard. I feel like I feel like Oxnard was more of a distinctive moment in Anderson's discography, whereas Ventura was maybe like kind of like a return to some of the ideas that he was going for on Malibu definitely different. Like it's a, it's a very different album, but I just, you know, I really like it when artists uh, change up their sound and like challenge themselves. And I feel like he was much more like pushing the envelope of his discography and like what we expect of him on Oxnard. I completely agree with you. It's honestly really amazing that he's been able to put out four albums and all of them have not like a different sound. I would say, of course not, but they all evolve every single time he puts out a record, which is always good. With Bruno, I was going to say that in his entire career, he's won 142 awards and he's been nominated for 421 of them. He has nine AMA awards, three BET awards, five billboards and 11 Grammys. Plus in 2016, he was given a Hollywood Walk of Fame for, um, I believe, his album that he came out with, which was um, 24K Magical. If you could say the ranking of what it'll be at the end of the year for their collab album, do you think it'll stay number one throughout the next couple of months once it releases? Oh, you know, it really depends on what drops around it. And I think we'll probably, I know you wanted to talk about like, some of the other releases that are coming out this year. Um, it really depends. I think that you have some of the heavy hitters starting to cook it up right now. Um, you know, we have the Drake pack that dropped last night. Um, Kendrick Lamar is always lurking around the corner. Um, I know like Adele is supposed to drop this year. Lord is supposed to drop this year. Taylor's having like her albums reissued and everything. Like it's going to be a very commercially successful year for music all around so it's hard to tell like i i think that like basically what ends up happening at the beginning of the year is that everybody gets in this big game of chess and they're trying to figure out when to drop their album to not get overlapped by anything else 
and so artists like to wait for like bigger artists to drop so that they can be like they can sneak in afterwards and get their their time in the sun so i really you know in short terms uh i think that it depends on when they drop it but i do think an artist of bruno's caliber there's no reason to believe that it should not be a number one album and it could definitely be a number one album for several weeks uh depending on what comes out around that time i remember you sharing a message which i um saved and put into my documents for albums in the near future we have albums that recently dropped well last night it dropped genesis album that you shared me with that song smiling with no teeth um have you listened to the full project yet or? yes uh genesis owosu he liked my tweet today isn't that exciting yeah i tweeted it you know that's I, exciting i like to let these you know a smaller artist know that you know i really appreciate the work that he put into this album it's fantastic i woke up this morning as the first thing i listened to it's a fantastic album easily my my favorite of the year so far which is not saying too much because the year is really just getting started, but it's definitely going to finish high on my list. It's a fantastic debut project. And honestly, uh, I, I found him through Anthony Fantano, who's, you know, like a very, very popular music critic online. And um, I'm assuming that Anthony is going to end up reviewing the project and probably giving it a high score, depending like based on like what I've heard him say about this artist so far. But you know, that's exactly, you know, that's, that's props right there. That's, I, I can't wait for him to get that exposure and for more people to get their ears on this project. It's fantastic. Um, and I really do think that'll help. I remember um, with Brockhampton, I really think that Anthony Fantano's coverage of Brockhampton was a big reason why they gained so much success so quickly because right when they dropped their first single for Saturation One, he was on it, promoting it, putting it in like his best songs of the, the week lists and everything. And, you know, just it was upwards since then. Like they didn't even really get any other big cosigns for a while. Like Anthony Fantano was like the biggest person in giving them cosigns. And I really, really hope that uh, Genesis Owusu has like a, a similar trajectory because, yeah, he's very, very talented. Last night. Drake dropped a three-song EP. What were your thoughts on that? I, we listened to it together, and I wanted to ask you your thoughts after. Now it's been almost a day since it's dropped. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, it's Drake. I mean, what what do you, what you can what, you can't say anything bad about the man at this point. I'm well, you can call him a pedophile and whatnot, but um, in general, his music, you know, it's solid as ever. He's He's an underrated rapper. I mean, at least, um, you know, historically how I've perceived him is I always had a problem with Drake when I was younger because I'm such a Kendrick Lamar fan and they kind of had their little falling out. And, you know, compared to Kendrick, compared to J. Cole and the other big rap artists of this generation, he's not as purely hip-hop. He's not like... You know, he's not going to, like, bar you to death. But he can certainly spit. And I think that this project was a pretty good indication of that. The song What's Next was a lot of fun. Um, I really Yeah, that was probably that my one. favorite of the pack. The song with Lil Baby, it was solid. I'm not, like, the biggest Lil Baby fan. I think he's one of the most uh, 
I don't know. He's just kind of like a young thug clone. He doesn't like really do anything for me. Like, I mean, no, no disrespect to him, of course, at all. But I totally understand the appeal of his music. It's very like, it's very relaxing. It's very chill. It's like something you can just kind of like kick back to. I totally get that. Um, but I'm just looking for like a, a, something a little bit more engaging from the music that I listen to. And then as for the final track, you know, Rick Ross, underrated all-time great rapper. Um, maybe the song dragged on a little bit too long. I, I don't think Drake's rapping was compelling enough to excuse the song being over six minutes. But, you know, I'm sure that... I think maybe the Lil Baby song and then What's Next are probably going to end up on the Certified Loverboy track list because last time with uh, this is the first Scary Hours EP, he dropped you know God's Plan, which is a big old hit, and then Diplomatic Immunity, which I actually preferred because I really like that song, but it never made the album because it just like it didn't do as well commercially. I remember you sharing that list of albums that were going to be coming out in 2021. You you put confirmed to be announced the Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack Silk Sonic, Drake's Certified Lover Boy, Brock Hampton's Roadrunner, and Danny Brown's XXXX. Um, out of those projects, which one are you most excited for? You know, it's got to be between the Silk Sonic project and then... Um, Danny Brown's quadruple X. I don't know how he's going to actually, I don't know if it's going to be XXXX, but however he pronounces it. Anyway, it's a sequel of, of his first breakout project, triple X, which he dropped when he was 30 and now he's turning 40. Um, and that was the project that made me fall in love with Danny Brown. And Danny Brown is a top three rapper for me right now. I think that he makes super fascinating, experimental, but easy to listen to music. Um, I think that his rapping is underrated. I think that, you know, once you get past his voice, you can really, really, and I, I love his voice personally, but I understand why it might be grating to some people. Um, he's a fantastic artist. He's super, just a fantastic balance of creativity and lyrical ability. Um, and yeah, if it's, if it's anything like his first project, or the the first sorry the the triple X like the first project in the in the sequel, um, it's gonna be a classic because that's one of my favorite hip hop projects that I ever listened to. Likely to be announced for twenty twenty one, it has Isaiah Rashad, No Name, Toby Lou, J Cole, Denzel Curry, Conway the Machine, Baby Keem, um, Jid, Pusha T, Horsey, FKA Twigs. Rosalia and 070 Shake. Out of those projects, which one are you most excited for? Um, immediately, I mean, actually, what's funny is that I kind of listed those like somewhat in order, like because like I would start based on like what I knew because and I and I only knew things off the top of my head if I'm excited for them. So like Isaiah Rashad being at the top of that list, No Name being at the top of that list. Did you say Pusha T was he on there? Pusha T is on there. Yeah. Yes, he's on Pusha the Pusha T did say story. that he was going to have a project coming out in the first 90 days of 2021. So um, produced. Okay. Well, yeah. So now that's a, that's a tough one. So the, the three that I named, I'm going to speak on them just a little bit. Isaiah Rashad 
has not dropped the project in nearly five years. I think that the two projects that he does have, Soviet Demo and The Sun's Tirade, two of my favorite projects of all time. He's super smooth, super, like, nice, calm listening experience. But his lyrical ability, like, and his rapping ability cannot be understated. Like, he's a very talented uh, rapper. As for No Name... I'm, I'm, um, you know, her first project, Telephone, it's, you know, maybe the best women's hip-hop album that I've ever listened to. It's definitely up there. Like, it's a fantastic, I'm ready for her to, like, stick her position at the top of not only hip-hop for women, but, like, hip-hop, period. Like, she really is, like, if this album, like, shapes up to be as good as her previous two, like, she could be a top five rapper in the game to me, regardless of gender or anything else. Like, she really is that talented. Um, and then Pusha T, I mean, I think you have to note that he said that so far, uh, the only production on the album that he's currently working on is uh, Neptunes, you know, Pharrell and Chad Hugo and Kanye West. If, if I just get a, a, a Pusha T album full of, like, Pharrell and Kanye production, like, I don't know if it gets more ideal than that. Like one of the one of my favorite all-time rappers with two of my favorite all-time producers. Not to mention he's working on a project with Madlib, which is also going to be ridiculous. Like I think Pusha T is going to have maybe like the best hip-hop year out of like I don't know if he's going to drop the best albums, but like if you're looking for some like rapping and some good ass rapping and some hard ass songs to play in your car, like he's probably going to be the guy to go to this year. Um, here you have not confirmed, but possible Kanye West, Travis Scott, MF Doom, Freddie Gibbs, Kendrick Lamar, Rihanna, Where Is Blood, Lil Nas X, Adele, Lord, Smino, Joy Badass, Ski Mask, Saba, Corday, Tierra Rack, Billy Eilish, Father John, John Misty, Absol, Schoolboy Q, Amir Vaughn, and Mile High Club. A lot of those I know the names of, but which one are you the most excited yeah, and for? Some of those are more likely than I'm letting on, but I'm just trying to be as conservative as possible with this list because, you know, oftentimes I run away and like I feel like at the beginning of every year I'm like, oh my god, this is going to be the best year for music. Like, all these people are going to drop, definitely. And it's like, some of it doesn't end up happening, and it's, like, always disappointing. So I'm curbing my enthusiasm a little bit. But as for that list, the names that immediately jump off, obviously Kendrick Lamar. Um, he's my favorite artist on the planet right now. Um, and he's had a lot of time to work on this project. And I'm just very, very curious to see what direction he goes in next. At this point, I have no idea. As far as like, because uh, he had a song that leaked uh, earlier this week, and the person who had it basically implied that there was an album that was supposed to come out in 2019, or was at least made around 2019, and then it ended up being scrapped for whatever reason, so the whole like rock influenced album that people have been talking about and like, you know, like rumors have been stirring around about like that could be gone by now. Like we don't know what he's sitting on right now. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, obviously Kanye, 
uh, is always like a, a curious case. You never really know what you're going to get with him. I'm looking forward to Utopia by Travis Scott if it comes out this year. Um, because it's just going to be massive. I love these albums where it's like an artist. Like, you know, I'm not like the biggest Travis fan in the world. I mean, I love uh, Rodeo. It's one of my favorite, like, you know, trappy hip hop albums of all times. Um, but I just, I just, it's going to be such a big release. I'm not the biggest Drake fan in the world, but I'm looking forward to Certified Lover Boy because it's, these albums are just going to be massive and like, it's, it's going to define the culture for a period of time. Like, like as much as I like, I mean, I thought Astro World was okay, but like, I can remember so vividly like the time in my life where that album came out. It's just, it's a moment in the culture. It's a moment in history, and like, yeah, those albums are always the most fun to me. Of course, um, I was gonna ask you um, another album that I named off there, MF Doom's Bad Villainy Two. If it does drop um, this year, by the way, rest in peace. It's sad that he um we he's no longer here. If it does drop or anything, do you think it'll be able to be top five, the top ten um, albums of the year? Yeah, I, I, that was actually I was gonna name that album as well, but I was like in my head, I'm like I think I'm like I'm forgetting something, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, first and foremost, I'm MF Doom. Uh, I was very, very, very sad to hear of his passing. Like to me, he's one of the best lyricists of all time. Like I'm putting him top five for me personally. Like. He was fantastic, his rhyme schemes and everything, especially his rhyme schemes. Like, you know, making music, like, whatever I make myself, like, I, I can't, like, like, one of the first songs I ever made was on an MF Doom beat, just messing around. Like, yeah, he was a fantastic producer as well, but no, that rhyme scheme is just, it's lethal. Like, it's just, everyone always makes the joke about, like, the Cheetos, Fritos, Doritos line, but, like, he, no, but like I mean that line, like whatever, man. But like sometimes his rhyme scheme, his internal rhyme schemes, like the rhymes within the lines themselves, it's just unmatched. Um, and yeah, if if we do end up getting Mad Villainy too, um, which I believe the uh, the label head of, I think it's either Stone's Throw or Warp. I think it's Stone's Throw. Um, he said that he's been given permission to release it, but. He's not necessarily sure what he wants to do with it yet. He wants to be, you know, obviously as respectful as possible. He doesn't want to, like, come off to, like, MF Doom fans as, like, a money grubber or anything. So I totally understand that. It's a very, like, complicated and sad situation. But, you know, I have hope that it'll come out eventually. Maybe not this year. But, um, it, yeah, if you're you're talking about Mad Villainy, which is one of the, you know, the MF, uh, MF Doom Mad Lip collab one of the most acclaimed hip-hop projects of all time like you know like those hip-hop heads like they they love that album like it's it's the rapping is fantastic mad lips production classic as always um and i would definitely love to hear it and yeah if it comes out and it's as good as you know as we as the first one is or like even close to it it could easily be a top 10 album of the year if not top five it's honestly very, very exciting for both of us to be able to see all this music being released this year. Hopefully, a majority of these artists do release these albums, because if it does, then 2021 will be ending off, or starting and ending off in a great way. Um, to switch over, and because I was mentioning to you, I want to also talk about UFC 259, which is tomorrow night. Yeah, baby. F 15 fights, one fight, 
almost got scrapped, which was Joseph Benavides versus Askar Askarov. Reason being, Askar Askarov dropped, missed weight by one pound. Because of that, it'll now be a catchweight fight. Askar Askarov is um, going to be giving up 20% of his purse, but the fight will still go on on a, on a preliminary card on ESPN and ESPN+. Plus. But everybody, as exciting as this entire card is, the main card is what everybody is looking forward to. The reason being, three championship fights. Peter Yan defending the Bantamweight Championship against Aljamain Sterling. And I believe, and what I believe is his first defense for the championship. Amanda Nunes defending the Women's Featherweight Championship against Megan Anderson, who is a tough competitor, but everyone is seeing this as an easy dub for Amanda Nunes. And... The light heavyweight championship main event, Yana Brahovic versus Israel Adesanya. Adesanya is not only undefeated, he's the middleweight champion, and he's never, ever looked weak or soft in any of his fights. He's been able to destroy and dominate the majority of his opponents. This is looking to be one of the biggest cards of the entire, could be very well the one of the one of maybe if not the biggest card of the year, if not one of, I was going to mention that yes, every fight on this card is very, very, very exciting. By the way, do I sound clear? I was gonna ask you that. Yeah, you're perfect. Okay. Every fight on this card is exciting. From Mario Batista versus Trevin Jones, from Livia Renata Souza versus Amanda Lemos, Sean Brady versus Jake Matthews, Tim Elliott versus Jordan Espinosa, Rogerio Bortoni versus Kai Karaf France. But I will say, and also, let's not forget all of the prelim fight cards. Joseph Benavidez, who is coming off of two losses to the featherweight, to the, I'm sorry, to the flyweight champion, Deepson Figueroa. Askar Asgrov, whose only loss, not even considered a loss, it's a draw, was to Brandon Moreno, who fought Figueredo a couple of months ago. We watched that fight, that flyweight draw, which was one of the most exciting fights of the entire year. If Askar Asgrov is able to defeat Benavidez, this very well earned him a potential title match after Brandon Moreno and Deepson Figueredo finished the fight in a couple of months. There's also the prelim main event. Dominic Cruz, a very well-known Bantamweight, one of the kings of the Bantamweights, versus a rising star in Casey Kenny. In my personal opinion, what I would say, Casey Kenny winning this fight could knock him into the title put to a title contender fight. But if Dominic Cruz can beat him, I feel like this will be the revival of Dominic Cruz's career. But the main card is what we're going to mostly be talking about. You and I both watched Thiago Santos versus Glover Teixeira. Sadly, Santos lost that fight. Glover Teixeira was the better fighter, and now he is be serving as the backup opponent for Jan Brahovitz versus Ezra Adesanya for the light heavyweight championship, since he very much does deserve a light heavyweight championship match. His opponent is Alexander Rakic, recently defeating Anthony Smith in the main event of a UFC fight night. If you could see this fight going either way, do you think Santos could overcome the knee injuries that he sustained to defeat Alexander Rakic and get back on to his knockout sprees? Or do you think that it'll cause him to have the same mistakes that he had against Glover Teixeira, where Rakic can walk away with either the submission win, knockout, or, or a submission? 
you know, let me ask you, because, you know, obviously, you know, a lot about, about a lot more about the sport than I do. Santos has how long has he been active in the game? Is he like a seasoned veteran or is he like a younger guy? You could consider him a seasoned veteran in this game. He's been around for almost the longest time, which is crazy because you wouldn't think so with the rise that he recently had. So with Santos, the last fight that he had was very well much in his favor was against John Jones for the light heavyweight championship. But in the very end, he lost by decision and he almost basically could not walk again because both his knees were torn up. It was horrible. It was scary. And him coming back to fight Glover Teixeira was a tough challenge that in the end proved that Glover Teixeira was the better fighter that night. And I feel like he needs to go back to the same roots he had when he first came up to the light heavyweight division, where he also does hold a win, a knockout win, over Jan Brahovic before getting his light heavyweight championship match while Jan Brahovic was still working his way up into the division after suffering a couple of losses. Yeah, so, <coughs> sorry, I just, uh, I, I had to turn this to the Joe Rogan podcast real quick and take a hit, but, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, when you're starting to get later into your career, even if you're, like, you know, like, just a bit past your prime, and you're you're starting to have, like, severe injuries to the legs or, like, your arm, like, basically, any part of the body that is going to limit your mobility, like, I think it can be dangerous. I know that, like, you know, I had an arm surgery uh, in, like, eighth grade. My left arm, like, it's fine, but, like, it never truly recovered to, like, the point where it was before. Like, I think, like, his – I'm sure his legs are fine, but when you're getting the shit kicked out of them, are you going to be able to take that? Like, that's my question, and honestly – you know, we saw in the Connor fight. I don't, you know, I don't know. Like, obviously, like it's probably going to be like a different style and everything. But like with the Connor, Connor and Poirier, like you take those legs out from somebody, it's game over. And when you've had badly injured legs and you're coming back now, and it's like you can say whatever. You can say like, "Oh, I feel great. Like this is the best I felt in my career." Whatever you're saying, uh, you start getting hit in those legs, especially when they've been damaged in the past, like. It's. I don't think it's going to be good for him. I don't. Th- I don't know if he's going to overcome that personally. I feel like the only way he can win this fight is by checking a lot of leg kicks because Rakic is going to go be going for a lot of leg kicks to be able to perform a perfect game plan of taking out the legs and getting the easy win. But if Santos does perform like the way he did before the surgeries and before the John Jones fight. It could very well be lights out for Rakic, who I feel is a top contender in the division. They're both top contenders in the division, and it's going to be a very exciting fight to open up the card. Um, another fight that's going to be happening, Islam Mashaev versus Drew Dober. Both fighters, amazing. Both fighters are very, very entertaining. They both have knockout power. They both can wrestle. With Mashaev, he was supposed to fight Rafael Dos Anjos, and that fight got scrapped three or four times. Drew Dober has been trying to be in the rankings, has been trying to work his ass off to be able to get here. If Dober is able to do this, he could be a very big breakout name for the lightweight division. But if Islam is able to defeat him, I feel like the best decision to book is to book him against Audier. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly, the way I see it, Islam, I don't think it's going to be much of a challenge for him. I genuinely don't. You know, I, I've only seen him fight a couple of times, but the man is dominant. 18-1. and one, uh, I think he's just going to be hard to stop, man. He's got that Khabib in him. He's just going to drown you in the deepest open and smash you. Like, there's nothing you can, there's nothing <laughs> you can do about it. Like, I drew Dover, like, you know, solid, like definitely solid. But I think that Islam, I think this is going to be like one of his, you know, obviously one of his biggest challenges yet in his career. But I really think that he's meant for more. And I think he's going to end up, you know, at the top of his division, fighting the best. And it's only up for here, uh, from here uh, for him personally. And a fight that a lot of Bantamweight fans and a lot of MMA fans are looking forward to for Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling. Both fighters, very, very amazing. I've watched both fighters on the rise throughout the many years that I've been watching MMA, and they're both very entertaining. They both have knockout power. They're both able to go to the ground and dominate. With Aljamain Sterling, in this, on December 9th of 2017, when he fought Marla Moraes and got knocked out, Everybody basically thought that that was the end for him. That was it. That was over for him. It was a brutal knockout. It was sad. He comes back. He beats Brett Johns. He taps out Cody Stammen. He beats Jimmy Rivera. He beats Pedro Munoz. And then most recently, in a minute and 20 seconds on June 6th of 2020, he beat Corey Sandhagen, who is a tough competitor, who most recently knocked out with a flying knee, another top competitor in Frankie Edgar. With Peter Yan. Him becoming the champion, him working his ass off. His last loss, March 26, 2016, that was his first loss. That's been his only loss. Since then, he's been dominating. He gets to the UFC, beats almost all the guys. Well, beats, I mean, actually beats all the guys. Douglas Silva, DeAndre, he beats. John Dodson, Jimmy Rivera. He knocks out Uriah Faber. Watch that fight live. I was screaming off my head. It was an amazing fight. It was a crazy knockout. And then to win the Bantamweight Championship in Abu Dhabi for Fight Island, he, in the fifth round, defeats Jose Aldo, destroying him on the ground. It was a scary situation. I was hoping the referee would stop it soon. They're both, from the last time I checked the betting odds, a minus 115. If you could pick one person to win this fight, between Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling, do you see a new champion walking out, or do you see Yan walking out with a championship around his waist? Oh man, I'm I'm really rooting for Aljamain Sterling. Like I really, really want him to fight, win this fight. But Peter Yan, man, there's something about those like those Europeans right now, man. They're just I I look at Peter Yan as as just an unstoppable force right now. And Aljamain Sterling is like, you know, he's like the good guy, the, like the underdog. Like I want him to win. But like for me, Jan is just, I think he's unstoppable right now. I think once again, he's the type of guy that he's going to need the type of challenge. Like, I don't know who is even going to be that, that person, but I, he just needs like, you know the bantamweight division is it's somewhat weak, right? I mean, may, may, am I am I thinking of the wrong one? I would say no to that because every division is being built up and everything. I would say that at this moment, right now, the bantamweight division is pretty stacked, at least. 
Was it historically weak, or am I thinking about another division? That was the flyweight division where everybody was saying it was weaker. Yeah. But recently, after, sadly, the Demetrius Johnson trade for Ben Askren, which I still am highly against, that was a horrible trade deal. No, no offense to any of the fighters. But Demetrius Johnson going back to the championship whenever Henry Cejudo defeated him for it would have been perfect. And if we could have gotten Demetrius Johnson against Stevenson Figueredo, Figueredo, sorry, or Brandon Moreno, or again, Joseph Benavidez, and we could have gotten any of the fights from Henry Cejudo rather than him moving up a weight class, him defending it and keeping it there, it would have honestly been higher for the flyweight division. But at this moment, the flyweight division is getting stacked. The Benavidez division is getting stacked. I will say that both divisions have every right to be able to stay in the UFC and keep afloat. Yeah, I was thinking, I knew it was on the smaller side. I just wasn't sure how small we were getting. Um, But yeah, I mean, I don't know who else is in the division that can like, I I think Jan is like, he's going to need somebody that really challenges him stylistically. And I mean, do you think that Aljamain Sterling, like, do you think he has that, like, that style matchup that could actually, like, give him the win? When I first watched him, well, when I watched him fight live, um, Corey Sandhagen, he immediately went into the clinch, took the back, and choked him out in a minute and 20 seconds. But Corey Sandhagen is not somebody like to just uh, oh, look away from him and be like, oh, no, he's not good. Afterwards, he beat up and knocked out Frankie Edgar in the first round. There's also Rob Font, who is a very, very big name. There's still Aldo. There's still Cody Garbrandt. There's still Marlon Moraes. There's still Frankie, Pedro Munoz, Rafael Sanchao, and Dominic Cruz, who's still trying to come up into this. Plus, Casey Kenny is also a really, really good athlete. This Bantamweight division, I would say, is honestly its best at this point. Same with the Flyweights, because the Flyweights have Brendan Moreno, Joseph Benavides, Asko Askarov, Alex Perez, Alejandro Pantoja, Brandon Roy Val, Matt Snell, all of these people who are able to make the smaller divisions look very entertaining because the flyweights were never very boring at all. They were always entertaining. It's just, no offense to the UFC, but they have a harder time promoting the smaller divisions than they do hyping up the heavier, heavier divisions. It's fair. I mean, honestly, like, as somebody who used to be a casual fan myself, it is absolutely more fun to watch two big bubbas slugging each other than like <laughs> the two little guys. I mean, as I've grown to really appreciate the sport as as more of an art than just like, oh, that guy just knocked that dude out. Um, you know, you start to appreciate like the the lower and I mean lower as in lower in weight divisions. Um just as much, if not even more, because they, they can't just rely on, like, you know, they, they rely less on just raw brute strength and stuff like that. But obviously all very, very strong. But um, I'm kind of high. I got free we were talking about, but yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Well, the prediction is, who do you think wins this? Peter Jan? If, okay, here's the, here's the prediction time. Who do you think takes it? Peter Jan or Aljamain Sterling? I'm taking Peter Yawn. My gut and my brain says Peter Yawn. Do you see this ending at in the first, second, third, fourth, or fifth round? Or do you think this goes a distance? Um, I don't think it's going to be like an early finish. But 
I'm assuming it's gonna like I, I would say maybe a third round TKO stoppage. That's what that's what my gut is telling me right now. Okay, that's exciting. The next fight, the co-main event of the evening, Amanda Nunes defending the featherweight championship for what I believe is the second time. The last time they defended it was against Felisa Spencer, which was on June 6, 2020. And they defeated him by unanimous decision. It was an amazing fight. Great. But now they are fighting Megan Anderson, who a lot of people on MMA Twitter, you can obviously see them trashing Megan Anderson. She's very entertaining. She's really good. But people don't think that a two-fight win streak should be allowing her to fight Amanda Nunes, which I say is baloney because there's been even worse fucking fighters that have fought from a one-fight loss no offense to Jose Aldo, who fought Peter Yan for the UFC Bantamweight Championship. And we all saw how that went down. But Dana White has said, and Amanda Nunes has already spoken on it, if Amanda Nunes is able to successfully defend this championship, the featherweight championship, the featherweight for the women's, will be going away. The division the will be destroyed. It won't be brought back. None of that. Because they have a horrible time at, again, building these rankings and building this roster of women who very well could be in this division, but the UFC doesn't spend any time on working on it. Megan Anderson is currently 11-4 and on a two-fight winning streak, whereas Amanda Nunes' last loss was on September 27th, 2014 against Kat Zingano. Since then, she's beat Shayna Baszler, Sarah McMahon, Valentina Shevchenko, Miesa Tate, Ronda Rousey, Raquel Pennington, Chris Cyborg, Holly Holm, Jermaine Durandamai, and Felisa Spencer. She has not looked weak in any of her fights. She has knocked out a majority of her opponents. It's amazing to see what she's been able to do since the last loss. And everyone's seeing this as an easy dub for Amanda Nunes. But what do you think? You know, I think... You have to be safe. You have to be careful in the UFC uh, discounting these fighters. I think that there's a reason why Anderson is in this fight. You know, she's beaten a lot of good people, like, period. And, you know, as dominant as Amanda has been, you always have to be careful. Like, let's let's not forget what happened with Ronda Rousey. Everybody was saying, oh greatest woman's fighter of all time dominant beats everybody in like 10 seconds flat nobody can stop her she gets stopped twice and more impressively by amanda nunez amanda had her shook with one punch one punch and ronda looked like a lost dog and i I just you know as as much as i'm not just gonna completely discount anderson's chances in this fight to me this is amanda nunez's fight to lose like she like it would be like i i think that she would have to make mistakes to lose this fight and you know we don't know yet we've never seen her uh or we very rarely see her put into positions where you know she has to like fend off an attack and like you know she's reeling and she's like you know hurt she doesn't get hurt she really doesn't she hurts people very quickly usually and that's like the one thing is like I often wonder with these fighters that get a lot of quick finishes, it's like, how do you fare in the later rounds? Like, But I've also seen Amanda Nunes take fights to later rounds and still dominate them. So 
Um, I have nothing to be afraid about in making this pick, but I would absolutely take Amanda Nunes in this fight. A lot of people are predicting that this fight ends in the first round by a knockout, but what's your prediction for it? I'm not going to lie. With Amanda, that almost seems like the most likely finish. Um, But I'm going to give Anderson the benefit of the doubt and say... I'll say second round TKO. I'm not going to give her too much more, but I mean, it obviously she's going to be prepared, right? Like you've seen what Amanda Nunes does when she gets into the octagon to other women with one punch, like you're going to be ready for that offensive attack. She needs to slow Amanda down and take control of the, you don't want to, I don't think she wants to like, I wouldn't like, you'd have to pay me millions of dollars to stand up with Amanda Nunes, man, that punch looks lethal i don't think uh anderson wants anything to do with it um so i think she'll you know try to drag things out a little bit maybe try to wear her down in a sense but yeah i mean that's that's the only way you stop somebody like amanda nunez you have to wear her down you know you gotta like you gotta take the power out of those punches you gotta like you know and you gotta keep your distance because if you get punched it's lights out ask ronda rousey (laughs) <laughs> yes um and going into the biggest main event right now of the year Jan Brahovic versus Israel Adesanya for the light heavyweight championship this is probably the biggest main event I've seen since Stipe Miocic versus Daniel Cormier for the first time for the heavyweight championship when Cormier was the light heavyweight champion there's been many many double champions in the UFC. There's been Conor McGregor, Daniel Cormier, Amanda Nunes, Henry Cejudo. If I'm counting out anybody else, my apologies, but those are the big names that have come out of it. With Jan, everybody has counted him out a majority of his career. Everyone has said that he won't be able to do this, he won't be able to do that. But his notable wins for him have come against Elio Latifi, Jared Cannonier, Jimmy Manawa, Luke Rockhold, Jack Sosa, Corey Anderson, and most recently, Dominic Reyes, who very well was also talked about as somebody who defeated John Jones, but the judges gave it to Jones. Reyes suffered a knockout loss, I believe, in the second round to Jan. His record is 27 wins, 8 losses. This will be his first defense against Ezra Adesanya, whose wins come against Melvin Gallard, his debut win over Rob Wilkinson, Marvin Vittori, his main event win over Brad Tavares, Derek Brunson, another main event against Anderson Silva, the legend, Kelvin Gaslam, Robert Whitaker, Yoel Romero, and Paulo Costa. He has had two defenses in the middleweight division. He's going up a weight class, and he looks. he wants to take the championship. He wants to be one of the few men to be able to do this, and he wants this to be the moment where everybody says you cannot stop Adesanya because he wants John Jones. It's very, very well known that the fight that Dana White is his mouth is watering right now, thinking of John Jones as the heavyweight champion, whether Engano or Miocic to walk out with a championship against Israel Adesanya will be the middleweight champion, the light heavyweight champion, and potentially the heavyweight champion. 
in your honest opinion, who do you think walks out? Do you think Jan pulls off the upset? Or do you think Adesanya sweeps through him like nothing? I'm... I can't tell you, like, the last time that I felt this uncertain about a main event. Because these two these two have just been so dominant lately. But I think one person's dominance and momentum slightly outweighs the other. And honestly, I think I'd have to give it to Israel Adesanya. I, like... The man, you know, I know what really convinced me because I was kind of unsure going into today was I watched an interview that he did with Ariel Helwani and he just sounds so supremely comfortable and confident, but not to a degree where it's like he's, he's, you know, discounting Jan and he's like not going to like give him the credit that it is due. He knows what he's getting himself into, but he's like, he's got all like, you know what I'm actually, I wanted to kind of like talk to you about is uh, he mentioned that. Um, he basically sees two pathways to victory for himself. One, which is basically just beating the crap out of Jan. And, like, I think he said, like, it'd be like a car wreck, basically. Um, which he very well could do. I mean, he's a fantastic striker. But he also mentioned this, like, secret strategy that he wouldn't elaborate on. But Ariel eventually, like, prodded him into admitting that it was a submission and that he was basically like, there's a certain mistake that Jan makes that he's like looking to take advantage of with the submission. That I mean, just hearing that because you know Jan's that that information is going to be relayed to him. I think he might be too cautious, and maybe this is all part of Israel Adesanya's plan. He wants to he wants Jan to get in his head and you know like focus too much on like like certain like mistakes that he could be making as opposed to like actually engaging in the fight. Either way, I think that Israel Adesanya is just supremely confident, dominant, undefeated. What else can you say? Um, you know, he wants to fight all year long. He's like, he wants to fight. He wants this. He's been waiting for this moment. He knows that he needs this win. If he wants to uh, eventually have his big fight with John Jones, like I really think that Israel has the momentum going into this. With the idea of like, me thinking of Adesanya either going for a guillotine, um, no any type yeah. of mission to be able to defeat Jan. He's never won by submission before. He has 15 knockouts and five decision wins, no losses. This will be his first submission win if he's able to do this. If he is, it'll make a lot of people scared because the thing is, if Jan, God forbid, is not able to make this fight, and Glover is, and he submits Glover to Shara, a submission artist, that'll even be scarier. But going into this fight, fighting Jan, if he's able to defeat him, there's immediately the in the back of their heads of the UFC booking, Glover to Shara versus Israel Adesanya if it's an early stoppage for Adesanya. And that'll be a bigger fight because the last wrestler that Adesanya had to deal with it was Joel, Joel Romero, who was not able to really take him down, was not able to control any ground game, and Adesanya was able to stand up. If he's able to secure and execute a submission on Jan, who, if I can look back on it, has only been submitted one time in his career, that would be legendary for not only Adesanya, 
for him winning the championship and for proving that he's able to adapt every single fight every single time. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see a submission finish for Adesanya. I think that would be... He said that if that happens, he's going to post, like, receipts that he was planning this. If he really, like... Because that would just be so, like, unbelievably cerebral uh, to, like, pick apart his opponent, find these little mistakes, and then recognize a uh, a solution to, like... It's something that, like, nobody has ever done before. It is honestly amazing. So going back to... I'm going to talk about the fights that we're both looking forward to and everything. We're going to give our predictions, and then it'll be the end of the show. Joseph Benavidez versus Askar Askarov. Do you think Askar Askarov stays undefeated, or do you think Benavidez bounces back and is able to defeat him and end a streak? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, sorry, my uh, I got a little bit distracted. But, yeah, um, as for, like, I don't know, as for what I think is going to happen... Um, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think that Jan's gonna be too cautious. I, I honestly like. I, no, 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 no. This was I'm talking about um, Joseph Benavides versus Askar Askarov. Oh, sorry, I got distracted. What was the, <laughs> what was it about? <laughs> no worries. Joseph Benavides on the prelim card will be fighting Askar Askarov. Askarov has not been defeated yet. Benavides is suffering from two, um, knockout well, a knockout loss and a submission loss, um, similar to Deepson Figueredo. And now he's going into this fight, not looking forward to a third loss, and he's looking to bounce back and to be able to defeat the streak of Askar Askarov. Who do you think takes it? Oh, I think Askarov, I mean, undefeated, right? Like, I think that's so mm-hmm. big. When you have that type of momentum and you haven't had to come back from hardships and everything, um, I got to give him the benefit. Again, also, I'm just looking at a picture of him. He looks terrifying. He looks like he'd destroy me. But, um, yeah, I, I think I'd have to give it to Askar Askarov. Um, also, I'm so sorry for getting distracted. I sound like such an idiot. You asked me a question about, like, another fight. I'm like, yeah, man, yawn. I'm like, <laughs> no worries about it. I was like, it's totally perfectly fine. Don't worry. Um, the prelim main event, it'll be a three-round fight. Dominic Cruz coming back after a knockout loss to Henry Cejudo for the Bantamweight Championship against a rising star in Casey Kenny. Do you think Dominic Cruz can be able to use his heart and passion to get this win? Or do you think Casey Kenny, the rising star, will take out the legend and keep furthering himself more into the Bantamweight division? You know, I usually side with the up-and-coming because I feel like eventually with like these more established fighters, you have... They hit their peak, and then when you see them start to struggle and falter and they have to face an up-and-coming guy, the up-and-coming guy usually takes the cake. Um, but I don't know. My gut for this feels – I'm leaning towards Dominic Cruz, honestly. I feel like Dominic Cruz, you know, you look at his record, 22-3. and three, He hasn't struggled too much, uh, you know, inside of the octagon. Um and, you know, Casey Kenny, you know, being up and coming and everything, that's, that's a positive. You know, you're young, you're fresh, you know, you've got, you've got more to prove. But I really think that Dominic Cruz, you know, as you've been saying, like he's, he wants to get back to the top. He's motivated to get back to the top. I really, really, uh, I think that he can take this one. I'm going to go with him as well. 
Thiago Santos was Alexander Rakic. Do you think Santos can bounce back and finally get that win that he wants? Or do you think Rakic continues his dominance in the light heavyweight division? Oh, wait, where is this fight? Oh, the, is this a is this an early prelim or is it on the prelim card? This is the main card. Oh, it's the main fir- card. This is the opening oh, okay, fight. Okay. There's the opening fights in the main card, gotcha, yes. Switch back. Um, I'm probably going to go with Alexander, I think. I think uh, Santos, I'm worried about those legs. I'm worried about those legs being taken out from underneath him. He's not going to be able to move. And, you know, once you're trapped, you got to – you know, you got to take whatever your opponent's going to give you. You really do. So I'm going to go with Alexander. Sweet. Islam Mashaev versus Drew Dober. You said earlier that your pick is Islam to win this by just complete domination. Is that your final pick? I'm going with that. I think he's going to win the fight, and I think he's going to win it pretty handily, yeah. Okay. Peter Jan, Aljamain Sterling. You think Peter Jan take this? Yeah, I'm going to stick with Peter Jan. Um, less handily than Islam's win, but I think he'll still win with some, like, you know, you'll be impressed with uh, just how dominant he is for a good portion of it. Amanda Nunes was making Anderson. You you see make Amanda Nunes continuing her legacy and defending the championship, which would probably be the final defense for the Women's Featherweight Championship. You do not see Megan Anderson pulling off any upsets. No, I think that I honestly think that this this is uh, Amanda's fight. I think that you know I don't want to be disrespectful to Megan Anderson, <laughs> Anderson, Anderson, but um, I really think that Amanda Nunes is probably going to dominate. And the final fight: Jan Brahovitz, Erzo Arsania, the biggest fight at light heavyweight for both fighters. Your pick is going to be Israel Adesanya. I think he's got he's got the swagger, he's got the confidence, he's got the skill, the dominance, the momentum. I think everything's going in his favor right now. All right, all right. Thank you so much for being part of this. I'm so glad I asked to talk to you about this. We were able to talk about Anderson Pack and Bruno Mars. We're able to talk about upcoming albums coming out this year, the fights, which are going to be very exciting to watch tomorrow. Um, I really do appreciate you being on board with this, and I really do hope you have a great day. Rami, it is always a pleasure, my friend. I'd love to come back anytime you want to have me, and yeah, you have a great day yourself. All right, thank you. No problem.